Good evening, everyone. Last week, we talked about how psychoanalysis would move across the ocean, as anti-Semitism scared away the largely Jewish psychoanalytic movement. Today, we'll talk a little more about how the newly American psychoanalysts rose to prominence. When Freud first visited the United States, and even still to this day, the largest organization for psychiatrists in the United States was the APA, or American Psychiatric Association. For its first century of existence, the APA was comprised mostly of alienists, which, if you'll recall, are those psychiatrists who focused on taking care of the extremely mentally ill, housed in asylums. Unsurprisingly, when Freud first showed up, the psychiatrists of the APA weren't very interested in these unproven theories about the unconscious mind. For psychiatrists whose main work was taking care of the severely mentally ill, psychoanalysis had very little use. Talk therapy for someone who is delusional or a danger to themselves and others is not very effective. However, the psychoanalysts that were in the United States very much cared about the APA. Since the APA was the largest group of psychiatrists, they had a lot of influence, and the psychoanalysts wanted some of that pie. Starting in 1924, the American Psychoanalytic Association actually held its meetings at the same time and in the same city as the American Psychiatric Association. I like to imagine the psychoanalysts running into the APA members in a bar somewhere, saying, fancy meeting you here, and acting like it was all just a coincidence. In the 1930s, the psychoanalysts began to lobby the APA to officially recognize psychoanalysis, which led to some conflicts with the executive board of the APA. Clearly, at first, the alienists had little interest in psychoanalysis, which they considered unproven and not very useful. However, as often happens in history, people are not just interested in the truth or in science, but have also their own self-interest at heart, too and psychoanalysis offered a lot of personal benefits to psychiatrists. In the age of the alienists, even the best of alienists would end up working to administer an asylum, usually somewhere in the country, away from mainstream society, and working primarily with extremely mentally ill patients with no hope of improvement. Suffice to say, life was rough for alienists, at least compared to a lot of other medical professionals. In contrast, for example, neurologists of the time were usually working in private practices, outside of hospitals, making good money for attending to more clearly physical neurological problems, like headaches, muscle paralysis, or fainting. But with psychoanalysis, psychiatrists saw their chance at their own nice offices with good pay and easier clientele. I don't say this to diminish the work of alienists. On the contrary, I think their work was incredibly important, and there is a lot of good karma in taking care of the extremely ill who have little hope of recovery. But psychiatrists are only human, and I can absolutely see how working as an alienist must have been incredibly hard, and psychoanalysis presented an opportunity for a better life. This change, though, from alienist to psychoanalyst, would also bring with it a change in how mental illness was defined in American psychiatry. Previously, the mentally ill were those who needed to be placed into asylums, and the healthy were basically everyone else. The line was very, very skewed towards severe mental illness, because if you need to be housed in an asylum, things are usually pretty bad. However, the psychoanalytic movement took that line between the sick and the healthy, moved it over a bunch, and then just shredded it. 
Freud, if you'll recall, believed that basically everyone had some kind of unconscious conflict that could be resolved with treatment and improve the lives of patients. Accordingly, psychoanalysis made it so that anyone, even folks who are generally fine in society, could benefit from therapy, an idea that I actually find myself agreeing with. But of special interest to the psychiatrists was that functional and wealthy people who just wanted to feel and function even better have money and influence. Asylum patients aren't exactly rolling in dough, and certainly don't advocate for themselves very well. Even if you help them, they don't usually have the capacity to go and tell everyone how great you are, in contrast to the comparatively healthy patients who came to be known as the worried well, and very much had the capacity to tell the world about their awesome new psychiatrist. The worried well became the main market for psychoanalysts in the United States and Europe too, in 1917, only about 8% of American psychiatrists had private practices. Again, most of them would have been alienists working in asylums. By 1941, about two decades later, that number was up to 38%, mostly because of psychoanalysis taking over. And in yet another two decades, about two-thirds of American psychiatrists had private practices. The 40s seemed to be somewhat of a turning point, though. It was around this point that psychoanalysts in America were no longer a tiny minority, and psychoanalytic therapists were employed by a bunch of celebrities in Hollywood, which is actually where the term shrink comes from. A rather offensive trope of the time in movies was that cannibal tribes would shrink the heads of their enemies, and either as a comparison to the cannibals or a suggestion that therapists were shrinking the big egos of movie stars, psychoanalysts became known as head shrinkers, and later just shrinks. The term would be popularized by an interview with an actor in Time magazine, and by the 50s, the term head shrinker was being used nationally, including showing up as a lyric in the Broadway musical West Side Story. Clearly, catering to rich, famous clientele had its perks, and definitely helped increase the influence of psychoanalysts as well as just how many people knew they existed at all. Having secured their place in popular culture, psychoanalysts sought also to increase their academic prestige. For any medical professionals, prestige often runs through premier medical schools and teaching hospitals, and that has certainly not changed in any recent years. The Bulletin of the American Psychoanalytic Association in 1940 actually explicitly tells its members to go and, quote, secure a formal contract from a nearby university, noting that, quote, it is to the interest of psychiatry, and especially to the development of psychoanalytic psychiatry, that our psychoanalytic training institutes should teach more men who are headed towards academic teaching positions in medical schools and hospitals. This isn't a trend we're just noting now in the present, but was a deliberate strategy of psychoanalysts at the time, and honestly shows some remarkable foresight in my opinion. One by one, the psychoanalysts infiltrated the psychiatry departments of top universities, and by 1960, almost every major psychiatry position in the United States had been taken over by psychoanalysts. This then led to psychiatric programs at these universities teaching psychoanalysis, and unfortunately, Freud's earlier works had fostered a culture of unquestioning loyalty to his theory. New psychiatrists had to be indoctrinated, and questioning psychoanalysis as a medical or graduate student would immediately make your career much more difficult, so very few people bothered to speak up. Psychoanalysts then began to expand their reach even further. 
While once psychiatrists were drawn to psychoanalysis to get away from the severely mentally ill, the psychoanalysts now turned their attention back to asylums. Freud himself did not believe psychoanalysis could be applied to severe mental illness like schizophrenia or mania and depression, but he was long gone at this point, and psychoanalysts were becoming ever more bold and influential. While a select few did try to apply psychoanalysis to severe cases early on, they were relatively rare. But over time, more and more psychoanalytic hospitals were opened, and more and more theories were spun about severe mental illness. For example, one psychoanalyst believed that schizophrenia was caused by mothers having toxic behaviors towards their child. Parents in general got blamed for a lot of problems by psychoanalysts, since they could heavily influence a child's early psychosocial development. While I don't think that's inaccurate per se, the theories as to why are pretty nuts. Autism was, of course, caused by cold and emotionless mothers. Depression was to avoid punishment from parents. Homosexuality, which unfortunately was considered a mental illness at the time, was supposedly caused by mothers who instilled a fear of castration and women in their children. The list goes on and on. Psychiatrists even began getting involved in politics, perhaps trying to ride the wave of their success even higher. A group of psychoanalysts formed the Group for the Advancement of Psychiatry, which went on to advocate against war, poverty, and racism. Which is all well and good, it's not like I'm a big fan of war, poverty, or racism, but I think it does illustrate just how high psychoanalysts were flying at the time. The American Psychoanalytic Association, which you may recall had a measly 92 people in 1932 across the entire United States, had swelled to 1,500 people in 1960. In 1924, the first Freud-leaning psychiatrist became president of the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, and for about six decades, the presidents of the APA were almost exclusively psychoanalysts. By providing personal benefits to psychiatrists, working with the rich and famous, and deliberately taking over academia, the psychoanalysts had made it. So that's where we're going to leave the psychoanalytic movement for the time being. For the sake of narrative coherence, we're now going to go back in time a little bit and talk about a little something called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. As always, thank you for lending me your ear, and I hope you're enjoying the show. If you do, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, or just let me know with the links in the show notes. I'm always happy to hear from you. Thanks, too, to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, and Muse Open for this music. Music 